Good morning, everybody. This is Grant, and I am super pumped today. I got good jams on the radio. It's Monday. We've got a killer week. And today's show, we're actually going to be talking about how to raise up the dreamers, how to raise up the dreamers, whether it's your you as a dreamer, how to make sure that you're nurturing people around you as dreamers, and why. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about a secret, unveiled, new Van Gogh that no one has ever seen or maybe just rediscovered. We're going to be talking about a very rare, hidden, late 1800s poem written by an African-American about being a dreamer. We're going to be covering that. We're also going to be covering, of course, before all of that, a morning cup of gratitude. What are you grateful for this morning? I want to hear about it. I want to hear what's lifting you up. I've got a few things. Of course, I'm going to share what I'm grateful for this morning because it gets me pumped. It gets my endorphins going. It gets my serotonin going. It it gets my oxytocin going. I'm grateful for a lot of things. And I think quite often in an often negative world, gratitude is the thing that can anchor you and really lift you out of the dump. So I want to hear from you this morning in the comments. What are you stinking grateful for? Let me know. I'm going to go ahead and start. Let's talk about cup of gratitude. This morning, I'm grateful for several things. Number one, I got a killer. I landed on a killer morning radio station. Loving it. Number two, I'm grateful for my friend James who uh, dropped his lovely family off at the airport yesterday and made his way to where we were at at our investment property or one of our investment properties and working on it. He came out, he helped, and we just got to fellowship. And I might have been in a negative place in my mind, but when your friend shows up, you straighten up and you have a better time. And then he and myself and Marissa, we enjoyed ourselves, had breakfast and came home. It was a very productive, good day. So super, super uh, grateful for that. Boom, Lisa Welsh from Vitality Farm said he graduated. Grateful for that. Her son graduated. We had a bunch of graduations right around the corner here uh, in Lakeland, Polk County area. And Lisa Welsh's awesome kid graduated. That's huge, Lisa. I'm celebrating with you. What else am I grateful for? I'm grateful for this. And I want to actually take a moment and share this with everybody. I'm going to pause here because this is partly other news. So we're going to like half transition to other news, half transition to what we're grateful for. Let's do this thing. It is called The Dreamer by one of the very first nationally recognized African-American poets, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Let's talk about it. (laughs) The poem, The Dreamer by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He says, temples he built in palaces of air, and with the artist's parent pride aglow, his fancy saw his vague ideals grow. Into creations marvelously fair, he set his foot upon fame's neither stare. But ah, his dreams, it had entranced him so he could not move. He could go, he could no further go, but paused in joy that he was even there. He did not wake until one day there gleamed through his dark consciousness a light that racked his being. Still he rose alert to act. But lo, what he had dreamed, the while he dreamed, another wedding action unto thought into the living pulsing world he had brought. Now, yes, that's written in 
1800s old English, if you will. But reading between the lines, Paul Dunbar talks about the dreamer who first and foremost, the reason one dreams is to lift one's own spirit up and to give them a light in the darkness of their mind, to lift their spirits up. And sometimes your dream is supposed to be so strong, so powerful, so pervasive, that in the dreaming, it just catches you and you're full of joy. But then he goes further to share in this poem, and I'll share a link to this poem actually in the comments because I recommend you read it once or twice. I really do. This is There's profound wisdom in this poem about dreaming. Because in the second stanza, basically what he says is that it's good to dream to bring joy into your heart and to lift you up so that you live a life of joy and fulfillment, awareness, and gratitude. But it is also important that you be a dreamer because while dreaming, you find that the world had begun to pulsate and give life to the very dream you had dreamed. Written by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, one of the first nationally recognized African-American poets. I highly recommend you check that out. That's our first piece of Gratitude slash other news hybrid. Let's talk about a lost Van Gogh. <laughs> so yes, lately a lost Van Gogh masterpiece has actually been discovered, rediscovered by a New York City collector. You see, uh, New York collector Stuart Pivar. I hope I'm saying his last name right. Stuart Pivar, who actually, believe it or not, I discovered had with Andy Warhol established the New York Academy of Art in 1979. Apparently, he has discovered a long-lost Van Gogh painting masterpiece at what he calls an obscure country auction. Now, this is raising a lot of red flags because he's not telling the story of the provenance. As me and Marissa watched uh, uh, some documentary about uh, basically fake paintings that uh, that had been distributed throughout New York City. So I'm sure everyone's red flags come up when someone says they can't share the backstory of a painting or where it came from or how to track it. And provenance is how we actually decide whether or not it's an authentic painting or fraud uh, or fake. But apparently this painting so far is looking good. In fact, the Van Gogh Museum um, has requested that the painting be sent to them so that they can verify or authenticate its ownership. It's called Auvers in 1890, and it's even signed by Van Gogh um, or Vincent in the back of the painting. Now, some people are speculating that this painting was painted, one of the 70 paintings that Van Gogh painted in the last two months of his life before he took his own life in a field in Auvers. And the painting itself is unique for several reasons. Number one, very few modern people have seen it. There's very few photos of it in the modern era, if any. I actually don't think there's any. But it is square, 36 by 36, which was uh, not how Van Gogh often painted, which makes it very unique, but it is definitely in his style. And last but not least, it's possibly the largest Van Gogh painting ever discovered. If you care about long-lost art, caught and captured and rediscovered, boom, there's your link right there. Boom, check it out. You're welcome to review how Long Lost Painting is. And, there, and the thumbnail right there is the size. This is a huge Van Gogh painting if it is authenticated. But if it is authenticated, it is probably one of the best discoveries or rediscoveries in art in the modern era. So there you go. For those who like the Da Vinci Code and chasing art around the world, there you have it. Let's talk about dreamers. 
You know, I don't know if you noticed, but our other news was touching on dreamers. Van Gogh was a dreamer. He fact, In fact, it was him or Picasso that said, someone said, how do you come up with your paintings? And he said, I dream my paintings and then I paint my dreams. And then this Paul Dunbar, a poem who was writing poetry about being a dreamer. Obviously, the topic of being a dreamer is at the top of my mind for many reasons. Let's talk about how to raise up and encourage the dreamers around you and why we should. Let's talk about it. So a few years ago, a Russian news website known as The City Reporter decided to run an experiment. What would happen, they asked, if we wrote nothing but positive news for an entire day? What do you think happened? What do you think happened when a news site decides we're going to do nothing but write positive news for an entire day? What do you think happened? Well, some of you might guess it lost 66% of its readership that day. 66% of its readership gone. The social experiment was undertaken to see the effect of negative news versus positive news. Lisa Wells, she wished people were happier. No, the people actually went off to find other news. That was their confirmation bias, negativity news. I was shocked to read this. 66% of its readership disappeared. The stories were written all from a positive stance. They included things like how the roads were clear despite heavy snow. The result is that they lost a ton of their readership that day, and the very next day they went back to writing negatively biased topics. Now, it's writers and reporters were just as shocked as you were because the writers and reporters were sick of writing negative news. They were just as shocked. They wanted to write positive news themselves, but no, they found out the people basically browsed and started looking for confirmation bias, things that would prove that their fears were justified. Now, follow that up with an, uh, a science research by the National Science Foundation that found that people have about 12,000 to 60,000 negative thoughts or thoughts per day. <laughs> Lisa, well, <laughs> Lisa Well says, those are some dumb readers. Well, maybe, but maybe there's a correlation. Maybe if I did this show about nothing but negative news instead of other news, Maybe if I did this show about with negative topics, which I'll never do, maybe my readership numbers up here, if you can see those, maybe those would actually be in the dozens or hundreds. People want to know that their fears, their anger, their frustrations, they want to know they're justified. And that's often what happens with these titles. Now, if you compare this to the National Science Foundation, which found that the average person has about 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day, they found that 80% of those thoughts were actually negative. Some of it was negative self-talk. Some of it was negative assumptions about the headlines they were reading. Some of it was negative conclusions they were drawing based on what work was telling them or their bosses or their spouses or the kids. I'm going to drop a link here so you know I'm not making this number up. This is a very interesting article, again, from the National Science Foundation. Boom, there we go. 80% of these thoughts that the average person has, 12,000 to 60,000, let's just say it's just 12,000 thoughts a day, and 80% of them are negative, and we begin to believe the negative thoughts we have. That's heavy news. Now, 
paying attention to bad things, negative things, was probably very useful on the savanna and in our evolutionary journey. It was probably really good that we were paying attention to where the tigers were as opposed to the gazelle. It's probably really important that we were paying attention to which berries we should be avoiding as opposed to which berries we would just savor and love to do. That makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint. You know, everyone in our little tribe and village could die if we were a gatherer and brought back the wrong tubers or the wrong berries. And so we go out um, hunting and gathering with a radar that says, okay, what do I need to avoid? Now, meanwhile, we might have passed on our journey dozens, if not more, good vegetables, good berries, good seeds. But no, we were looking out for the negative. And that's probably how we evolved to be so stable as we are today. But it's truly disserving us. In fact, this negativity bias, if you look it up, this negativity bias has even made its way into our vocabulary. I have, I have a, a small game for you. Without getting philosophical, can you come up with the antonym for the word sympathy? I'll give you three seconds. Don't Google it. What is the opposite of sympathy? Now, I'll tell you. Here's a fun fact. Sympathy is feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. So what's a word that we could use that says it's feelings of joy and celebration for someone else's fortune? What's the word? We don't have one. Now we could stretch, right? We could dig and root around and come up with a word. Well, let's call it celebrating or let's call it, I don't know. Negativity bias has found its way into our vocabulary. What's another one? What is the opposite of the word? What is the opposite of the word trauma? We don't have one. Trauma is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience or physical injury. Do we have a word that means the exact opposite? What do we call a deeply uplifting and enlightening experience? Now, Jared Yates jumps in, and this is, I mean, this is where I would go, Jared. Empowerment, maybe? Yeah. In fact, what people don't realize, in psychology circles, it's taken us decades to come up with a term for this. There's PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But there's also post-traumatic growth. Now, trauma is an injury. So what's the opposite of an injury? Well, I guess we could call it growth, maturity, but you and I can recognize that as I share this, we feel that it's a little bit of a philosophical stretch. It's beneficial to have the opposite. Great. But there's no direct. Marissa says ecstasy. And I would give ecstasy to Marissa on this. An ecstatic or what the Greeks actually had a word um, that we base the word ecstasy on and that's ecstasis. I would go there. The opposite of trauma is ecstasy. It's a deeply uplifting, enlightening, elevating experience. And if you've ever had a true moment of ecstasy, whether it was shroom-powered or just joy-powered, you often have been permanently changed. But think about trauma. Think about someone who was born abused and how much work they have to do to undo that trauma. Now think about someone who was raised around joy and ecstasy, gratitude. There's not, it doesn't have the same impact for some reason. This is evidence of just an evolutionary trait. 
called negativity bias. Now, I'm not going to say every negative thought is bad. In fact, we call them limiting beliefs. You shouldn't go play in the street on a busy highway. Like Those are limiting beliefs, and you could categorize that as a negative thought. I shouldn't do something. Negative phrasing. But I think it is important to note something that's just a little bit, that makes it a little bit more important, and that's this. About 40 to 50% of Americans consider themselves in a survey to be optimistic, which is good. That's great. And, and I, was, I was glad to hear that more people would rate themselves optimistic than pessimistic than I would have thought. However, only 2.5% of the population is what we call innovators. And I would categorize an innovator as simply an optimist who gave birth to a dream. We could call this practical optimism. We could call it people that actually give legs to their dream. We could call it engineers, STEM, innovators, people that actually give birth to the thing in their mind. So I want to point out something. And it's a quote from Think and Grow Rich. I want to share this with you. It's a quote from Think and Grow Rich that really got me on this tirade today, and that's this. Here's the quote from Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill. <clears throat> In planning to acquire your share of a rich life, let no one influence you to scorn the dreamer. To win the big stakes in this ever-changing world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers of the past, here we are, whose dreams have given civilization all that it has of value. I've been having a few conversations over the last eh, week, a weekend or so, and it was exploring how every good thing in the world, someone actually visualized these hexagonal shelves. They pictured it here and they thought optimistically, I could do that. And only maybe 50% of carpenters have thought of that, but only 2.5% actually took the time to shape wood into a unique way that was pleasing and aesthetically enjoyable. The same with this very streaming service. There's lots of people who might have optimistically thought, man, it'd be really cool if we had a streaming service. And other people were like, yeah, that'd be awesome. But less than 2.5% of them actually started working on it. And maybe 1% of those actually came up with the service we use called Restream. Cars. Skyscrapers. Uh, Uber. Technology. The clothes on my back. The microphone I'm using. My watch. All of the good things that civilization currently values. Now, I don't mean individually. Marissa might value a trail. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about society. All the things that society values has come from innovators who are the fruit-giving optimists of society. Here's my point. We know that society has a negativity bias. We can agree. Most people around us just call out what is negative and wrong. But despite that fact, all the good we have in the world comes from less than 2.5% of society. That raises my radar to ask a simple question, and that's this. What if we increase that by a half a percent? There's a lot of good in the world, and I would even say that we're getting better. In fact, a lot of connectivity makes us think that things are really getting worse, and I don't think they are. I think things are actually very much getting better. Um, you can constantly look at these statistics, but Bono has a fantastic TEDx talk 
where he just drops statistics and shows how if we measure poverty on people living on less than a dollar a day, there's a lower percentage now than ever in history. There's more people with access to clean water than ever in history. There's more access to the internet and ubiquitous information, um, readership, um, uh, the uh, the ability to read, the ability to write, literacy is at its all-time highest in society. I think things are genuinely getting better. But all the good in the world has come with one arm tied behind our back because of most of people's negativity bias. Now, there's a lot of nuances to negativity bias, but for the sake of time this morning, I want to share with you just four, actually five quick ways that you can actually help nurture positivity and dreamers because they need to be nurtured. Listen, this 97.5% of society will go through and by default, intentionally or unintentionally, pull down dreamers. They'll just say an, off, an, uh, an offhanded comment and they'll think that they're helping. But the truth is, is they're pulling that person down. Someone will be in a tirade for dreaming. They'll be like, well, we could do this, this, this. And they'll interrupt and they'll go, hey, by the way, you know, that's not really realistic. Okay, like that's not what I was, I don't care if it's realistic. Or they'll say, well, you can't do that unless you do this, this, and this. Now, the person who actually offers this, this, and this, they have a unique gift too. It's practical optimists that actually give birth to most in the world. Pragmatism on how to garner the resources to implement that vision is equally valuable to the evolution of the species. But they're, they're not a dying breed. The pragmatic people of this world are not a dying breed. Dreamers, in my opinion, are being limited left and right. They're being pulled down unintentionally because of the way their brains work don't fit into the pragmatic stream. So here are the five ways that I believe you can nurture dreamers, the dreamers around you and the dreamer inside of yourself. And these are just some very quick things that I've just noticed that we can improve on to maybe move that needle from 2.5% to 3% dreamers. And if you can make just that shift, how much more good could we have in the world? How much more innovation? How much more benefit can we have to society? Let's cover these. Number one, number one, please stop criticizing dreamers. When you hear of something good in someone else's life, or you hear them talking about a desire for something, resist the desire to tear them down. <laughs> now, most of us are good, and most of us don't actually say, well, that's dumb. Most of us don't actually say, they're never going to do it. But in our minds, we think it. Number one way to kill the dreamer inside of you is to listen to another dreamer and think the thought and not catch it. Think the thought, man, they're never going to do that. Or I've seen them talk a big game their whole life and they never did it. That right there, that mechanism is you not necessarily killing their dream. It's you killing your dream. You as a dreamer, that destroys your ability to dream creatively. You can crave what other people have. What's more, if someone actually obtains something big in their life, you're allowed to crave it. Kind of, We don't want to be jealous. Jealousy often says, I want it. They don't deserve it. You can crave the travel, the houses, the freedom you perceive other people have, but never think they don't deserve it because you're nurturing a mechanism that says you have to deserve it to have good things in this world. You don't have to deserve it. Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's just joy. Sometimes it's flow. Do people in flow actually deserve the benefits of society? People often say, Grant's a lucky guy. A lot of people just walk up to him and give him things. My trip to semester at sea was given to me. He's a lucky guy. 
well, I believe in flow too. And I believe I spent a lot of work shaping my thinking that made me open to seeing the opportunities around me. If you are criticizing anyone, but especially dreamers, A, you're shunting off your own ability to dream. B, you're shaping a mechanism inside of you that say, nope, there's a mechanism and you have to deserve it like X. No, you want flow just as much as the next person. You want good vibes. You want luck just as much as the next person. So number one, stop criticizing dreamers. Number two, the inverse opposite, celebrate dreamers. When a dreamer's going off on a tirade, we need that in the world. It's like when there's been a drought and it sprinkles and everyone can go outside and enjoy that sprinkling. We're in a drought for dreaming. You are in a drought for dreaming. So when you actually pass by a legit dreamer and they're dreaming, don't roll your eyes and walk away or shut it off. Let them go. Encourage them. Say, ask questions that nurtures more of the dream. Don't tell them no or dissuade them or, or tell them to land their thoughts in reality. No, there's plenty of time. We'll spend 97.5 of our life in everyone else's practical reality. When a dreamer is off on a tirade, nurture it. Make that flywheel spin of dreaming. Don't criticize the dream and don't avoid it. Sometimes, sometimes you go, no, I don't shut dreamers down. I just, I can't handle the dreaming. I can't handle that. Well, quite often, those who can't handle the dream are because it's just convicting that they themselves are not a dreamer. They almost feel like it shuts them down for a dreamer to dream. And we see this happen quite often. We need to learn how these things can actually happen symbiotically. Where people, Not everyone was made to be a dreamer. In fact, from an evolutionary standpoint, if 50% of our society was dreamers, we'd be in a real mess. We do need the practical. We do need the detail-oriented, but we don't need it at the cost of dreaming. We don't need dreaming at the cost of the practical. We need, to, we need both to be able to recognize. It's like not recognizing a temperament. Hey, that temperament's introverted. That's extroverted. Great. We're learning to just work with that. That temperament's task-oriented. That, ter that temperament's people-oriented. We're learning to work with that. We also need to learn to work with the dreamers and the pragmatists. They have to work together symbiotically. Remember, team, together, everyone achieves more. Number one, stop criticizing dreamers. Number two, celebrate dreamers. Number three, and this one's really important, really important. Set time aside to daydream. You need to set time aside to daydream. You know, when I feel absolutely taxed, when I feel absolutely exhausted, all I want to do is lay on the couch and like binge TV. And then I, we watch a few shows and we go, I don't want to watch. This is not what I want to watch. But it's like the only thing left that you haven't seen yet. That's when you know that hollowness and that emptiness. That's when you know your psychology is literally telling you that you don't need to be a consumer of other people's stories. You need to be a producer of your own story. You need to go pull away. And I'm not talking about meditation. I'm talking about sitting down and visualizing, fantasizing better than Netflix, fantasizing your own dreams. What's possible? Let yourself soak in it. We spend so much time planning, doing punch lists, planning out the day, going through the list. And that's good. That's productivity. We're producers. But you have to set time aside to actually fantasize and dream and nurture who you picture yourself becoming. You know, Think and Grow Rich is great for this. It's got a whole section where it says 30 minutes a day. I bet you you can't even remember the last time you sat 
in the quiet and fantasized your ideal self. Who are they? How fit are they? Where are they? We talk a lot about this with goal setting, but we haven't really hit on goal setting in a long time. I haven't really hit on goal setting in a long time. Why? Because I'm sick of my, I am, I've been beat down as a dreamer. It doesn't feel like it. I'm not persecuted, right? People aren't shutting me down and telling me I'm stupid. I mean, that's not it. It's the low key, subtle stuff that keeps telling me we don't need to know about goals. We don't need to know about vision. So I've backed off. But we need to dust this off like a, a sprinkle after a long drought. We've got to actually nurture and return to daydreaming. So set some time aside. Sit down. Get quiet. I mean, shut out all voices. Shut out all media except your note-taking. And just go into your mind and picture when you were your best and when you wish you were your best again. Number three, set time aside to daydream. Number four, write down your daydreams and desires. Write them down. Right now, when you fantasize in your head, a lot of times I'll ask, what are your goals? And people will think they'll go from right brain to left brain immediately. And they'll just write down like another punch list for the day. What's my top five things I got to knock out today? Boop, boop, boop. So what are my top goals? Boop, boop, boop. And there's no inspiration. You got to first fantasize and connect emotionally with that vision. Now, once you've, once you've paused and communicated and connected emotionally with that vision, that's when you write it down. But don't just write it down as a punch list. You write it down as a story. I call this process success fiction. You are literally writing a piece of fiction that is about your future success, but write it out like it's a story. If it's Lisa Welsh, she needs to write out her story about greens. She needs to actually write out, oh man, I'm sitting in front of a crowd of 5,000 people telling them about my journey and I feel like, wow, I came from kind of nothing in my background and blah, 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 but now I'm joyfully impacting people, hundreds of thousands of people. I'm employing my family at market rate salaries. My greens are touching the nation. I'm fulfilling my dream of honoring my friend's memory with healthy living. Write that, vision, write that vision down as, as success fiction. Tell the story. I go to Geneva to go speak, and, me, and on the weekend, me and my husband and family browse all over and, and, and visit Switzerland, right? Write these visions down. Write, in fact, Scripture says, write the vision and make it plain that he who reads it may run. Write it down. You got to visualize it first so that you're connected emotionally with it, but then write it down. Number five. And this is an interesting activity, and I challenge you with that this week. This week, I challenge you to try this activity. Write down the first 10 or 20 negative thoughts that come to mind. Write them down. Capture them on a sheet of paper or in your phone. Just capture these negative thoughts. Whenever you became a naysayer, whenever you were hating on someone else's dream, make note of it. And when you're private, go to the restroom or somewhere and jot down the first 10 or 20 thoughts you had that were negative about someone, about a situation, about a thing. Oh, I hate Trump. Oh, I hate Biden. Oh, I can't stand this or I can't stand that. Oh, cryptocurrency. I can't stand hearing about all these crypto kids. You know, whatever it is, the school system sucks. Write down the first 10 or 20 thoughts you had. And then write down something positive about that topic. If you can't stand Biden, write down something positive. If you can't stand Trump, write down something positive. If you can't stand the school system, write down something positive that corresponds to that one thing because there's something. This is called becoming a good finder. Be a good finder. Be a dreamer. Look for good. Don't just look for criticizing. And again, this is where the pragmatists are awesome. They're so powerful. They can see what's wrong, but pragmatists know how to fill that gap. 
But you don't have to fill that gap by tearing the person down who, who revealed the gap. It's dreamers who often say, it could be this. And when someone thinks about, well, it could be this, but that reveals all these gaps. That's not a criticism. That's not a, a, a that's not a, criti- a <laughs> that's not to be criticizing the person who revealed it. The person who revealed it is the mage maker. The pragmatist says, cool. Now, if we fill this in, we can build that thing. Make your responses cool. That's awesome. You know, if we did this, this, and this, we could build on that. It's called brainstorming. You know, at this age, I thought I'd see in all of our connectedness for all the the growth that goes on in society, I thought I'd see a much more rapid acceleration towards the collaboration between dreamers and pragmatists. But I see it's majorly void. We should do just a practical video webinar someday on how to actually allow dreamers and pragmatists to collaborate. Dreamers paint a dream and the, and the it's called an A-B analysis, the distance between where we're at today and B, where we're going. A dreamer says, we could go here. We should go here. And it reveals all that's lacking. That's why you probably need four or five practical people around every dreamer. I say this in small business. If you have a visionary leader in your business, not all businesses are run by visionary leaders, but if you do have a visionary leader in your business, you need about four or five practical people around them, not to pull them down, but to identify and not only identify, but to fill in the gaps. It's necessary. Why? Because dreamers pull society forward. That 2.5% of society... They actually pull society forward, oftentimes kicking and screaming into progress. But imagine if we collaborated. Imagine if dreaming didn't make everyone go, oh, here we go, but made people go, hmm, cool, we could do that. We could do it like this, 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 and this, and it would take this, this, and this. How are we going to do that? That's a great question. But too often it's, oh, it's going to take this, it's going to take that, and you didn't think of it, and... So we probably can't do it. What is that? That is what drags society. So if we can actually improve these five things, number one, stop criticizing dreamers. Number two, celebrate dreamers. Number three, set time aside. Even if you're a practical person, set time aside to daydream how you could be an even more superior practical person, how you could be better in your TLE, you're better in your fitness and health, your relationships, your work, you enjoy in your spirituality. Daydream. I'm telling you, if you did this one thing, I'm telling you, for those who watch this at any given point, you did this one thing today. You would feel so relieved. When you get free time after work or in between work, don't turn on the TV. Don't skim your phone. I believe phones are great, but take a a 15-minute pause. Put it aside. Don't even meditate. Go into the back room and fantasize your highest self. It will be like you took a shower in your soul. And everything you picture, say, I can do that. That can happen. Dude, be your own hype beast in that moment. You will feel so elevated. We can travel the world and it will improve our relationship and it'll improve our investments and it'll improve our brand. Approach things that way. And and your body language will shift when you're presenting these ideas to people who are normally naysayers in your life. They'll just feel different about the thing you're presenting. They're like, I could do that because you believe that we could be more. We can have it all. We have the power to have it all. That's number three. Set aside time to daydream. Number four, write down your daydreams and desires. Write them down. It's the second step of creation. Fantasy is the first step of creation. Writing them down is the second step. And then the fifth activity for the first 10 or 20 negative thoughts you have today, write them down. And right next to them, write down something positive about those things. Give it a try. 
I think you'll find out you're going to be nurturing your dreamer in a big, big way. Listen, if you need any support or tools or training, keep checking the State of the Spark website for blogs, posts, tools, training, all that sort of stuff. If you ever want to talk about anything like this, you know where to find us. The Facebook Goals and Gratitude Group, <clears throat> right there where we try to carry on these conversations. If you want to nurture this side of your life, by all means, let's get going over there. But no matter what you do today, remember the mission. Igniting lives of explosive significance, starting with your own. Have a great day.